1: Love Talk
2: radio Welcome to the Natural Running Network Live. We are brought to you by Mio makers of the first strapless EKG-accurate heart rate monitor sports watches, and Vitargo, the energy replacement and recovery drink of intelligent endurance athletes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner, getting ready to do your first 5K, 10K, marathon, triathlon, Spartan race? Well, sit tight, because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Good morning, everybody. It is Friday the 13th, 2015, and we got a great show for you this morning. Uh, we're going to bring back Jim Gourley, who has authored a new book, which is referred to as The Race Within. It's a story of the Ultraman World Championships and the trials and tribulations associated with putting on such an event. But before we get started with that, I want to remind you that the Spartan Cruise still has some room. And if you've been thinking about it, you need to get off your butt and, and act on it. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, it's going to be a big challenge. We're we're looking at, uh, well, let me just tell you this. It's not a Disney cruise, folks. We're going to go out of Miami to the Bahamas, private island, $50,000 in prize money at stake for whomever throws down and you know finishes in the top echelon of the sprint race. And on board, I'm going to be tossing down some VO2 testing. We're going to be doing some heart rate specific games. So if you're planning on coming, be sure that you pack your Mio Alpha 2 or your Fuse, whichever is the device of choice for you. Quite frankly, I think I'm going to use my fuse, because getting in the mud and all that jazz, you're not going to be able to see the the watch face that well anyway. But anyway, it's going to be a great time, and I hope you'll get a chance to come out there with us. So if you need details on that, go to SpartanRace.com, and you can find the the information, the links to the cruise and all that stuff. So uh, no further ado, let's go ahead and move on and do this show. Okay, I'm here with Jim Gorley and uh Christian Axon. Is that did I pronounce it right, it, Chris? It,
0: it's Isaacson.
2: Isaacson, I'm sorry. Yeah. No,
0: that's you know, cool. I'm that's...
2: looking I'm looking at your Skype call name and I guess that messed me up.
0: Oh, that's all right, man. Alright,
2: all right, so Jim Gorley's been with us a few times and you know, he's our in house rocket scientist and uh you know, an avid uh follower and devotee of um ultra-endurance events, uh, primarily triathlon, and Christian is, you know, he, he is he's an athlete. He likes to play in these long-distance games, and as it turns out, um, my dear friend Jim has just released a new book, and those of you that recall him from earlier shows, he is the author of Faster, which is an amazing book on the science behind movement for triathlon, so uh I I've been you know, I told him earlier and I'm just gonna share with the audience that I have not had a chance to read the entire book, but I have got into it quite a bit, and the title of this book is The Race Within Passion, Courage, and Sacrifice at Ultraman Triathlon. So Jim and Christian, why don't you guys say hello?
0: Hey, thank you. my name's Christian. Thank you. Um thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: <clears throat> <laughs> Good to be back with you, Richard.
0: Excellent. So guys, um I'm and actually
2: Jim, why don't you just kind of set the foundation for why you wrote this book and w- give me some give me some idea and the audience an idea of what the book's about.
1: Um well, I got the idea for writing the book back I think it really started in 2009 uh when I interviewed uh, David Goggins uh, for Triathlete Magazine, and uh, went, went into that interview thinking that, you know, his reputation as, a, as this really hardcore ultra-distance Navy SEAL type, um, that I'd be having a conversation with the Terminator, and was blown away by just what kind of a personable guy uh, he was, and so I, I got fascinated by the way he was talking about uh, the Ultraman. He, he raced it um, and so uh contacted the folks um, who who run Ultraman Hawaii, Jane Bacchus, uh, Cheryl and Dave Cobb, and said, you know, I, I'd really like to, to cover this race. And the more I learned about it and the way they did things there and tried to write about it for the magazines, um, I realized that we were sort of stuck uh, in the journalistic community on this Ironman paradigm of, you know, how many hours of the training and how many calories do they eat during the race? And, and I said, you know not what this is about. It's, it's a much different thing. And uh, so by 2011, um, I was getting a little frustrated um, with editors who kept focusing on the same questions. And I said, you know, we really got to expand this. And, and finally, um, I think it was one of the editors at, at 220 in, in the UK looked at me and said, Jim, if you want to do that, you're, you're going to have to write a book. And I said, "Well, why don't I do that?" And um, uh, approached the, uh, the Ultraman staff about it, and, and they said, "Sure, why don't you uh, you come out and try this? We'll see if um, this is a good relationship." And, and things grew from there, and uh, it was just an incredible story that unfolded. So I'm I'm happy to have done it.
2: So now, Christian, I understand you've uh, participated in this event on, on, on many occasions.
0: Uh, only, I, I've I've only done Ultraman twice. Um, I kind of dipped my toe into it a couple years ago after I. Uh, realized that I think I was built for the longer events. Um, I've been an athlete for a while, uh, bopping around trying to qualify for Kona at the uh, Ironman distran- distance. And um, I did uh, a couple of longer events, and then my wife and I, um, my wife out of frustration, and me out of desperation, I think, um, said you need to you need to move forward, and that's what uh, what brought me to to Ultraman.
2: Okay, now um, just for the sake of the audience. This Ultraman event is a three-day event, which starts with a 6.2-mile swim, followed by a 99, <laughs> you guys help me if I screw this up. It's a
0: 90-mile bike ride.
2: Okay, a 90-mile bike ride, and yep. the following day is 170 miles on the bike? 100,
0: 171.
2: And then the following day is a 60-mile?
0: No, it's it, a, double, a double marathon. Double marathon, 52 miles.
1: Okay.
2: Yep. I told you I was going to screw it up.
0: That's cool. That's cool.
1: Okay, so at the end of the
2: day, you know, when you're when you're into it that deep, you know, a couple of miles here or there, what's the difference, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of
1: my favorite things I saw uh when I went to Ultraman Canada uh and watched that race, somebody had had put up a sign um and, and I'm gonna uh, murder it because it, they had it in kilometers and I forget well, I was it said on the sign, eighty four or why eighty four point four kilometers? Because eighty five point five would be just plain crazy.
0: Right, I, remember <laughs> I remember seeing that as well. <laughs>
1: oh
2: my God, Becky! All right, so um, then, so Jim, you you started getting in, entrenched in the whole backstory of this event, which uh, goes off in the same on. It occurs in uh, on on uh, Kona, is it Kona? It starts.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, it started yep. on Kona after. Uh, Iron Man made the transition uh, from from Honolulu. Okay, so let me
2: share my my interesting tidbit with you. Okay, and you guys might or might not find this interesting, but you know, so I started looking at this book, and, and I'm going to be just I'm going to just toss it out there. I'll be as honest as possible. I'm going. Okay, so what, what what's this all about? You know, I mean, I, I've heard about Ultraman. I mean, I've got some friends that have done it. Uh, Mike Rouse apparently is uh, him and his wife yes. have, have done the race, and I, I've uh chatted with Mike many times. But uh and I'm like, okay, so I understand it's a smaller race and it's not quite as popular. It doesn't have the horsepower that Iron Man has in respect to finance and what what have you. But then I started to read the book and you started getting into this whole backstory of, you know, the mystery behind Iron Man and, and I think a lot of people have heard and we've even discussed on occasion the fact that, you know, these guys were in a bar and blah, 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 and Commander Collins and, and you know, these guys got together and said, okay, we're going to do the rough water swim. Then we're going to do the around the island thing. Then we're going to, you know, run the uh, the uh, Waikiki Marathon. And that's kind of how it, it birthed. And, but there are little bits of pieces to the story that you filled in very, very well. So here's the thing that you probably didn't know about me. I used to own and direct and produce the Maui triathlon back uh the first year we did it was nineteen eighty one. Oh cool. And it became you know, we kinda caught some of the fire that Iron Man was getting back in that time. Eighty two I was at Iron Man and um and uh eighty three I invited Valerie Silk and one of her guys to my race, which we were filming, uh, we actually did a, a full-blown documentary behind our event, and Team J. David all participated in my event. I, as a matter of fact, I had dinner with Team J. David at the Hyatt Regency, and um, um, Nancy Hoover, who was pretty much the, the marm of the whole thing, uh, picked <laughs> up the tab for everybody to be there, so Scott Tinley, Scott Molina, uh, uh, John Howard, um, Mark Allen, uh, Kathleen McCartney, Julie Leach, Bill Leach—all
0: um, the big guns. Huh? Everybody
2: that was part of Team J. David had their own room at the Hyatt. They had their airfare, accommodations, and here we're having this huge dinner, all under J. David's uh, checkbook. <laughs> Uh, for them to participate in my event. And, you know, so I was one of those guys, too, that kind of came up with, you know, had an idea, we ran with this, and all of a sudden our mailbox started getting filled from all over the world, people wanting to participate. So um, a lot of the story that you were telling early on, the backstory about how Iron Man got its got its momentum and all the things that occurred and the good and the bad of it all, I took it a step further. I got a call from CBS Sports to they wanted to cover my event uh, for television, and uh, I had I had a uh, a, a meeting with uh, David Michaels, who was the producer, one of the producers for CBS Sports at the time. He flew out to meet me, and he said, "Look, we want to cover we want to cover an event like this." and we've got Larry King who wants to put this race on on Kauai. Well, guess what? I knew Larry King wanted to put this, there was this race on, and I knew CBS wanted to cover the event, so I moved my date to the same day that Larry King wanted to do his event. Huh? Well, I'll be. And I forced him into a competition with me to see who was going to get the rights to do this thing. Now, this is really going to start to come together for you. What ended up happening was uh, David Michaels told me he goes look Richard you are the guy we want you to produce this event but we don't like your location we like Kauai better because I was putting my race on in Maui he basically told me he goes hey you know what nobody's going to die here today and so we need drama we need we need something you know pretty crazy to happen so that it's got some you know some some viewership right. He said, is a lot more treacherous, so we want to go there. He said, so you and Larry King need to get together and figure out how this is all going to work out. And when you get it sorted out, if you guys can come to grips with it, we'll cover the event. So Larry and I got together, and Larry did not want to meet with me, by the way. but <laughs> he, he was, was forced to kind of have his own show, wasn't he? He was forced. He was forced to meet me. We had breakfast. And you realize this is 1983, and he pulled out this little mobile laptop out of his briefcase that was battery-powered, and, you know, it's got like a dot matrix printer built into it. And we we struck a contract over breakfast where I would be the director of the event, all of the people that were going to be responsible for putting on the show, all my equipment, all my circumstance, we're going to be in control of this thing, and he was going to produce it. And then we raised money together. As a matter of fact, I'm, I moved to, to Kauai and moved into Larry's house, and I stayed with him and worked with him for three or four months leading up to the event that we produced, which was the Kauai Loves You Triathlon in 1984. Oh, that's cool. So anyway, this is, I just thought that, I would share this with you because when you started spilling off all this drama that was going off behind the scenes during early Iron Man, I was there. I was involved in all right. that jazz.
1: Yeah, and and you know, one of the things that I just I think people don't understand today. You know, I've I've heard it since the early two thousands. You know, people doing triathlon in, in the early two thousands would say, Oh, it was it was so much better back in the nineties. It's, you know, Ironman has been ruined since the early nineties. And today, you know, a lot of the athletes will say, Oh, it it used to be so much better in the early two thousands. And it's, it's, you know, gone to pot now and it's never coming back. You know, I think about every 10 years you, you get that group that's been doing it for a while and and they say, Oh, well it's, you know, it's, it's gone so corporate. Um, apparently Ironman has been going corporate for the last 30 years but i think it, it it truly did um it really crossed that threshold um the day valerie uh finally sold it in uh in eighty nine or ninety uh when she when she stepped away and that's when when the the train really left the station but even before um when it was still her thing and she was in a lot of ways trying to keep it small uh you had people um uh, like Larry King, uh, you had the, the sort of the J. David fiasco where I I, I don't know if you saw it, but at, at a certain point, all those checks that, that were getting written started bouncing all over the place. Um, and even back then, there were the, the complaints from the, uh, the pro athletes um, about how much they were getting paid. Um, Larry was obviously running his event in Nice and trying to compete uh, with Kona. Uh, and run uh, Valerie off, um, so he could he could capitalize on all that. So, um,
2: well, you know what's interesting? You're, you you even brought to light the fact that Larry kind of gathered the athletes and tried to develop a union where they were going to boycott uh, the Ironman because they weren't going to make any money. And I was I sat in those meetings. I was involved in those meetings. And I'll tell you what, you know, the frustrations that you depict that she was going through with the growing pains and the money and the carpetbaggers, dude, I was all up in that. I was getting hammered. I, I, I was like this little guy, just like she was, and this big monster machine. I mean, when I was working with Larry, Larry had nine homes, okay? Larry had, an uh, he on the island of Kauai, he had a home in Poipu. He had a home in Honolulu. And he had a home in Georgia, and he had a home in San Diego or L.A., and one in Chicago. He had nine homes. He basically had a suit in the closet of each of his homes and never really lived anywhere. You know, he just had a place where he hung his hat. And, you know, ha- you know, just, just a cra- crazy, crazy thing. And he was at the time still married to Billie Jean.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I never met her, incidentally, and I lived in her house for four months. But I was haunted by her tennis rackets, her ball-throwing machines, her shoes. Mm. And and it was really amazing to me how much sponsorship that she had been through with so many different people. So Larry was all about that. And and in in his defense, incidentally, I liked Larry. Uh, I got along really well with him. And he was the most – I used to liken him to Opie.
1: Well, you know, and and there's nothing wrong. And I don't think Valerie ever had uh, an antagonistic mindset towards people making money um, in the sport. Um, That was, you know, she wasn't trying to run it as a, um, a charity. But at the same time, she had a completely different mentality about what Iron Man was. She was obviously taking registration fees. It was her her you know seven day a week three sixty five a year job. Um, so she she had to make some income off it, and and she wound up of course selling the company for a profit. Um, but it was never a race series of cutthroat competition where everybody had a hand in the pie and was trying to to. Uh, Squeeze it for all it's worth. And I think that that did happen um, over time. I don't think it, it suddenly emerged in, in 2000 or 2010, as, as some people today think. It, it was a process, and it's a process that continues. But Valerie's perspective on it um, and what Jane Bacchus and, and Cheryl Cobb and, and the, the group in Hawaii today are preserving with Ultraman is the sentiment that it's a gathering. It's, it's a, a, a journey and an experience, and there needs to be a, a sense of sincerity around all that. Right. Um, you can't just keep bringing more people in and more people in and more people in and charging them higher prices because at, at a certain point, um, you lose sight of things, and it does become completely about uh, the money. Um, and I don't think athletes want that either. I mean, obviously there's there's huge complaints. The thing I see is that you know we always talk about uh, in the Ironman community. If you're on the slow twitch forums for five minutes, you'll you'll hear somebody uh, complain about. Well, it's it's all going to corporate, and I'm I'm going to get on the forum here and, and complain. But they'll always go back and, and register for another race. And my right. favorite refrain with those types of people is, "Well." You've already voted. You've already told Iron Man that you support this because you paid them money. Um, and so I think there's, there's a crowd today that thinks maybe by, by um, uh, signing up for challenge races that they can vote a different way, and they, they like having that option, and there was, was Rev. 3 before that, obviously, that's, that's with challenge. But there are other options beyond that, and there's, it's not just Ultraman. Um, there's, uh, uh, the, uh, the, ultra, uh, or the international ultra triathlon association, they do longer distance races. Um, but there are places that are preserving that experience. And I think, and and I hope that's one thing that comes out in this book is that you are not locked in to the Ironman merry-go-round. You're not even locked into the Ironman rev three challenge merry-go-round, um, and it's okay to go out there and do things of, of different distances. Um, it does surprise me that so many Ironman athletes are, are sort of intimidated um, by the distance. And the, and the first thing they say about Ultraman is, oh, man, you've got to be crazy to do that. But if you go back to 1980-whatever, uh, all the marathoners were saying that the Ironman athletes were crazy. And so it's a matter of perspective, and um, you know, I mean, Christians made that transition, and he was he was a great Ironman athlete um, before he did Ultraman. Um, so, I mean, you can ask him. It's in some ways it's it's tougher than Ironman. In some ways, an Ironman's harder. Just like uh, uh, you know, asking uh, one maybe one of the Brownleys which is harder, an Olympic distance uh, or an Iron distance track.
0: Well, yeah, and that's been the age of I mean, what's harder to run a fast 100-yard dash or a fast mile or a fast 400? Or I mean, it all is definitely relative to the place that you're trying to excel in. Um, but, Jim, that's a great point. That is a great point. Um, the whole corporate Ironman thing for me, um, not, to, not to fifth wheel on your guys' conversation, but I did start to struggle with some of the aspects of Iron Man and my wife did too um particularly after the way I was treated by one of the very very uh hi- I guess higher ups in the Iron Man um hierarchy uh I had a run in with him at the uh banquet the following day to go to the roll down and the guy was a total jerk um you've seen him on TV I even emailed uh Iron Man and expressed disappointment in the fact that um it just the guy was a jerk um, and that was one of the, one of two or three, um, linchpins for me that I think started to make me kind of step back and think, what am I giving my money to? Um, and, uh, and what am I affiliating myself with? So, and, and I'm a punk rocker at heart, so I always feel like I have kind of an ax to grind, but there were just a couple things that had happened throughout the course of, you know, seven, eight years of racing Ironman that really started to make me think, um, is my money being spent and my talents being spent well here, or could I use it elsewhere?
2: Well, let me just uh, go back again and and share with you that in 83, when uh, I put on my race, we had uh, Molina and Tinley, which were the the two young upstarts that everybody had their eye on. And, um, you know, Molina still hadn't made his bones yet. Tinley had some notoriety for his his, uh, exploits. Scott shows up with he was wearing a Sub4 race singlet and you guys may not be old enough to remember Sub4 but he had a pay, uh, he had a electrician's tape over the logo on his jersey and the race number we had used had was donated to us by Runner's World magazine and he folded the name Runner's World up underneath so that you couldn't see that so basically he ran and made very certain that there was no logo appearing on him, given that my event was not for money. Now, we did have some prizes, and I actually have some old uh, pictures, and and I interviewed Scott, and we we visited this, and he was kind of surprised, because I actually still have the video, which shows all this going on. But um, they were very, very concerned about, hey, you know what, you don't pay me, I work too hard, I need to make a living, so, you know, we're we're gonna go we're gonna go toe to toe with you. And even though, even in the book, you had met, mentioned that Scott went back to Ironman, even though a lot of the athletes had a, a committed to not go. I, I just don't th- I don't know, man. I being there then and being where I am today, I don't know what the answer is uh, to to all of this. I get the whole altruistic view of you know, trying to keep it simple, trying to keep it you know in this whole kumbaya mentality. Right, but this stuff takes it takes time, it takes money to produce, it takes money to produ- uh, uh, to participate in. I mean, someone that uh, you know, here you are, uh, Christian. You you live in Oregon. Yep. You know, you decide you're going to go do this event. Um, you've got to dedicate a tremendous amount of your time to it. I would I would believe, and then you've got to travel, and you got your toys, you got to buy, and it's expensive to, yep, it to, is. to to participate in something like this. So. I think it's reasonable for these athletes to expect to get paid for what they do, and you know I'm not one of those that would say, "Boy, it was so much better back then than it is today." I just think it's evolved, and I think it's I think it's cool. I think actually I think it's cooler now than it was then, because now I'm really curious to see what the threshold is for performance.
1: You know, go ahead. Let me back you up for a second there, um, because this is one thing. I really struggled with throughout writing the book and especially in, in those early chapters um, when you talk about Iron Um because of this mentality of, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not uh, assaulting it, but I, I would challenge it um, with Tinley and with any athlete because um, pro athletes and Ironman today are, are very much um, um, coming after uh, bigger paychecks and and, challenging Ironman on on prize purses. But this whole mentality to begin with of, hey, I'm not wearing this stuff because I work too hard. I don't understand at what point that, especially in those early days when the athletes made that transition from, I'm doing this for fun and I enjoy it, to I'm doing this as a livelihood and for the money mm-hmm. because I genuinely believe that anybody like Scott Timley, that anybody like Christian here um, anybody you know like Hillary Biscay um, will continue doing this for life it's, this isn't something they're going to retire from I think the only athlete I've ever heard um, that said he could walk away from it and then actually did was Jens Voigt He's very proud of the fact that he's only riding his bike down to get ice cream with his kids lately. Yep. Um, But I mean, ESPN uh, magazine did an article a while back on Michael Jordan at 50 years old. And even as the owner of a basketball team, he's still getting down on the court with his pro guys and, and hammering on the floorboards until his, you know, he's got to soak his knees. Um, There's just something to it. So I, I feel and I I know Scott has written extensively on the subject that at a certain point, there's a line you cross and you're taking it so seriously that you make yourself miserable. And he himself has has talked about how he made himself miserable doing it. Um, I don't know if it's a money thing or if it's taking yourself seriously thing. Um, So I think it's hard to look at the the Ultraman mindset and and point a finger at it and and sort of call it kumbaya. And I'm not, I'm not (laughs) blaming you for using that, but before we point at Ultramans and, and, you know, label it a kumbaya type thing, let's look over at, you know, not even the pros. How about these over serious um, age groupers who are shooting up performance enhancing drugs and, and, You know, coming out with all kinds of of cheating scams, Ironman, and spending, I mean, tens of thousands of dollars a year to qualify for Kona. And they're not even pros. And we know it happens. I mean, the studies have have shown. So what is a sport to you? Why are you doing this? And is that really what sport is about? And those are the questions I, I try to answer um in the book um I, you know obviously I, I i went with somebody's answer it was not my own, but I felt like it was the most um it was the most profound offering um at the end i won't i won't spoil the end for anyone well, that's good because I haven't got that far,
0: <laughs>
2: but well, you know, let let me just kind of uh, look at what you just said, and, and and it made me think of a couple things. And you, you, it's almost like you heard me in my mind thinking about performance enhancing drugs and in sport. You know, look at guys like Lance Armstrong. You know, I almost feel sorry for the guy. I got to be honest with you, I, I really do. Uh,
0: what makes you feel sorry for him?
2: Well, what what I feel sorry for him about is that. Um, n- nobody's ever going to remember him for the good things he's done. Um, and, and whether we like it or not, we have, to, we have to come to grips with the machine that he created, the money that he earned, and the processes that came about. There's a lot of people that were suffering from cancer that got some, something out of him. If For nothing else, if it wasn't a matter of just him creating cancer awareness, and creating that format, you know, and obviously you could say that was self-righteousness because he, you know, he suffered from cancer himself. But, but the the point of the matter is, whether good or bad, good came from it. And yeah, he cheated. Yeah, he lied. I mean, and yeah, he let a, pe- a lot of people down. But um, if if you ask me today, and you know, so I, I've kind of went, went around the horn with this in my own mind. If you said, look, we're going to give you about a bazillion bucks but you're going to have to lie to a lot of people. But when it all comes out, you're going to do a lot of good. Would it be worth it to you? And I no.
0: I, no? No, it wouldn't. Because it would look what he did on, on December 28th when he was drunk driving and hit those cars and put his girlfriend in the car to make sure that she took the plane. <laughs> he obviously didn't learn his lesson.
2: Yeah, no. No, he's not going to – I didn't say he's going to learn a lesson. And I'm not, I'm not trying to vindicate him uh, for – uh, you know all the wrongdoing. I'm just saying that. I'm just saying that there was some good in it. I mean, whether we like it or not, whether we want to give him credit for it or not, there was some good that came of it. And so it's kind of like what's going on with sport. I mean, we we, we like heroes, and heroes don't just just don't materialize. I mean, I mean, I'm sure that you know initially they do, but. But then the heroes have to compete with other heroes, and then then what ends up happening, and this is what happens in pro sport, you get a cheater. Uh, you know and then you start to realize, well, in order for me to be the hero you know above that hero, I got to cheat too. And that's what happens in pro cycling, that's what happens in baseball, that's what happens in football. And a lot of it is obviously you know driven by money. So you're always going to get the guys that are going to say, no, I would, ne- I would never do that. 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 But at the end of the day, um, I think this is kind of why it happens. And so looking at, like, events, and I, I was an event producer. I, I liked when we were just, like, a few friends on the beach and we did the race and what have you. But um, I saw growth. I, saw it, I, I had interest in, A, you know, I'm not going to lie. I wanted to make a living out of it. I wanted to be. I said, "This is great. If I could make a living doing this." Uh, I, matter of fact, I got in my little office here. I've got this little picture of a guy that's cutting his tie off, and the caption says, "Say no to real jobs." You know, I, uh, to me, being a professional athlete it's like saying no to real jobs. If you can make a, <laughs> if you can make a living doing what you really, really enjoy, and then when you retire and you still want to do it, even though nobody cares that you're doing it. That's beautiful, and I work with guys that right now they're in that mix. They're in their heyday. They're going to make a ton of money, and if they play their cards right, they're going to make a ton of money. They don't need to cheat, mind you. I'm not. I'm not endorsing cheating. I'm just saying that um, the sport takes on this complexion where eventually there's going to be money, and then you start to get infected by it. You want to make some money, so I don't know. I. I I, I feel you, brother. I feel, I feel how they're trying to keep the Ohana in this event. But I think that that, and you, you, you pointed towards it a lot, is that it, it starts to show up as potentially being the demise. The Ohana is almost killing the potential for this to become something that, that survives.
1: I don't think so. I, I, would, I would disagree with that. I, I would uh,
0: disagree with that totally, too.
1: It's It's been here uh, since nineteen. 19- 80, eighty, at least eighty five. Like, yeah. I can't remember if it was eighty four when they had the first one. Um, it's it's grown. Uh, it has contracted in, in the last year. Um, as you know, uh, in in starting twenty thirteen, you had Ultraman, Hawaii, Canada, and UK, and they added um, just last year Florida. Um, the UK event folded for for various reasons and Steve Brown um has gone a different direction so Ultraman Canada is now Ultra 515 Canada it's under mm-hmm. his own banner right um but this year there will be Hawaii, Florida and Australia um the Florida event is is a really strong well organized event um by um, uh run by Consuela and Trung Lively and uh I don't think you could find two people that uh more closely agree uh with Jane Box's uh philosophy on Ultraman. And Flor or I mean uh, Australia just has an extraordinary group of folks down there who have all who are all Ultraman finishers um who's who's led by uh uh Tony Horton um who's just a, an amazing organizational genius. Um I,
0: Percival Percival's on board with that too
1: yeah you know who who ran an amazing race in in Canada last year uh so I think there's there's strong leadership there, and so once again ultraman's at three events um but when you talk about growth um and i, I hate to continue to to draw uh, comparisons to iron man um but it works because we're talking about some very deep philosophical issues. Um, I think whenever people express frustration with Iron Man, they haven't really thought about what is it you're, you're upset about. Right. Um, people complain about Iron Man and will give Iron Man money. And that seems uh, contradictory, but what Iron Man does provide that Ultraman is not going to give you is a very streamlined, um, uh, Experience, I, I guess. I mean, they're you know they're computerized. The, the logistics are all there. They move mountains of people and materials, and I mean, it's almost it's sort of the same thing as getting on one of those uh, people movers at the airport, and you are on the assembly line, and you are going through your Ironman. Um, for Ultraman, you're going to have to have a support crew. You have to figure that out. You need to gather your supplies. You need to put all this together, um, but. You know, from what I've seen, and, and I think the Ultraman athletes will, will tell you, and I'll, I'll shut up in a second and let him tell you himself. Um, I think they believe that that enriches the experience, and that doing a lot of that stuff on your own is actually half the fun. Um, so you know, when we talk about should Iron or should Ultraman expand? Should it be more like Iron Man? Um, I think the, the answer is just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I'm not saying that Ultraman or Iron Man is better. Um, I think that there are differences in the experience. And for for people that are upset about this, that, or the other in Iron Man, um, uh, you know, again, if, if not Ultraman, maybe they want to look at the race across America, or maybe they want to um, look at Badwater. But I'll, I'll let, actually I'll let Christian uh, in here for a second and talk about you know what it's like from the inside out putting this together and I mean just getting to
0: Ultimate. Yeah, logistically it's tough and I and I don't have an axe to grind at WTC or Ironman or whoever. I mean I really don't. I think some of the experiences I experienced as an Ironman athlete and I'll probably end up doing another Ironman. Will it be an Ironman or a challenge? Who knows? Um, I think the one thing that athletes forget. Um, and I hear you, Richard. I'm, I'm on your side as well. Uh, I think when things grow or evolve, there's always mutations that never come into consideration until after the fact. and Then you've got to deal with it, whether it's cheating or. Um, and I think uh, when Ultraman is kept to a minimum of entry level, you know, of people that can entry simply for the logistics of it because of the course and the road and the fact that everybody needs a crew and you need support vehicles. Um, but I do think that they have found a way to, to navigate through pressures um, that I'm sure they've received uh, to expand and grow and make money and um, the sheer difficulty of just getting to the race. I would be curious to know um, if athletes knew, I mean, I'm sure Hillary would probably be the best um, or, you know, Roberto or Miro or any of the people that are the big wigs in the game. Um, it is a mammoth task just to get to the start line. Um, for yourself, let alone for other people, um, and the logistics of it, uh, are mind blowing. And that's one of the reasons why I think Jim's book, uh, peels back some of the layers for, um, you know, I've had people that have read, that, that have read it, that have already contacted me. It's like, I had no idea it was such a logistical nightmare, um, for you, let alone 45 athletes, um, to race for 3 days. Um I don't know if that I don't know if that helps you to, No, if, it
2: does. And but yeah. l- let me just let me just take it another step, okay? And and so and, and I'm just talking out loud.
0: Because, yeah, that's okay, cool, man.
2: And, and and trust me, you you're, you guys are both welcome to slap me if you feel you, you need to. Cool. Uh so <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, so So let's listen to this story, okay? Um when I got out of the triathlon business, um just one thing or another came together and I ended up uh, owning a health club. And, you know, I kind of made my bones in that for a bit. spent about 10 years. And then I, you know, I broke up with a partner and I said, you know what, I'm going to do this myself. And this time I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. And I started investing in things that nobody in the business would invest in. For example, you know, a, a metabolic cart, you know, uh, back in the day to do a VO2 test and have the facility and the, and the capacity to produce this type of thing, it cost me about 40000 bucks. okay? Now, when you're trying to put together a health club and you're looking at your budget and you go, well, I'm going to spend forty grand because this machine is going to give me a snapshot into people's souls. So I'm going to really get to the root of this whole concept of fitness and health and Get an understanding of who these people are and be able to really help them. And and the people around me are going, Dude, do you realize how many stairmasters you can buy? Do you realize how many treadmills you can buy if you were just to, you know, get off that rant and just forget it? I said, Yeah, 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 but listen, man, I can I can in a few minutes I can so I had this altruistic view about um the value and the benefit of actually producing what this whole concept of a health club fitness club was supposed to be about as opposed to just trying to march a bunch of people in the door and try to keep it cheap so you could have more people in the door and I, and i built this place out with oak cabinets in the locker rooms i made it i made it absolutely state of the art and then people argued with me oh look you know you can't raise your prices when it got difficult to hold the yard and try to do the right things people fought me and fought me and fought me Till eventually, after a few years of it, you know, being about 14, 15 years deep into this whole thing, I just said, screw it. And I sold it to somebody that bastardized the thing, and in a matter of a year and a half, he tubed it. And I run into people to this day that will come up to me that I you know, remember back in the day, and they said, you know what, man, there has never been a place like that ever again. You know, we haven't, you know, I wish you, why don't you build enough? Okay, so then I build this really bitching um science facility where it's just me and I'm doing my thing and I'm really tackling the science of work and helping people and doing this stuff. it just it's hard and and so the money is a necessary evil. So you get to this 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 conundrum you know where you realize that in order to do all the wonderful things you want to do you got to earn money too. And so the wrestling match is not so much whether you're going to be out there trying to earn. It's trying to manage the the righteousness of the process, too. So it's just really tough. And and so when I look at an event like this where, you know, when you talk about 40 people, I mean, yeah, that that's definitely a scrapbook type of stuff where you could say, I remember back in the day when 40 of us went out and we braved this thing and we ran, swam six miles and stuff. But I'm just – my fear is that it's just uh, – it's almost uh, – it's almost financially impossible for the thing to survive like that that's just my take
1: well i i-, I will admit that you know in my interviews with with Jane Bacchus, it became very apparent that um she did not care about the money and and you know what we we you know the saying holds true you know people who say money isn't or money isn't that important have money um and so Jane was always able. Um, through, you know, her income, and that's that's uh, you know, personal matter to, to her, her family. But um, she didn't need the, the, the race to live. Put it that way, uh, she was she was working in different uh, jobs, and so the race for her was always this just thing she put together every year, sort of like you know Thanksgiving dinner. Nobody charges admission to to that that into your family, hopefully. Um, but I mean. Uh, it was it's always been that way and in certain years um it's it's taken a couple of bucks out of everybody's pocket uh to put it on but the people associated with the race um were okay doing that right. um now Steve brown in in canada uh had a different perspective on it um he ran uh peach city runners and on sports in penticton um was very much into the industry. Um, and he wanted his race, um, I think to make a, a little bit more money, uh, and to be sustaining, uh, in terms of, of the way you're talking about it. Um, and he was also looking at it, um, from the perspective of the entire race series. Um, and they, they had disagreements on that and that was kind of what led to the split. Um, so Jane is sort of running it as a, a charity operation in some ways. Um, they do they do keep costs low, but they are still with their, the admission everything covering the race expenses. But you're right. I mean, no one's making an income off of it. Um, I think it goes back to why are you doing this? Right. You know, some people like you uh, want to cut that necktie off and and say no to real jobs and, and just do the one thing. Um, and, and that's valid. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, some people, like Jane, just want to put the race on, and they don't need to make a living off of it. Um, they are obviously putting as much time uh, into it as a professional race organizer. So uh, it just becomes a matter of how bad do you want to do it. And I think that's, in, in that regard, the question for the, the race organizer, for the race volunteer, um, is really no different than, than what uh, the, the race contestant has well, to answer. Well, know, why are you doing this? Um, I mean, Maybe the crazy people are the, the people who spend hundreds of hours every year organizing it and then don't even run in the damn thing. Uh, <laughs> I want to I uh,
2: break in and just point out that saying no to real jobs is actually really a job because because i I end up spending a tremendous amount of time avoiding having to toe to somebody and being my own guy and and doing my own thing, so I think that'd probably work about fifty times harder <laughs> not having a job than than actually taking a job for whatever it's worth
1: well and, and hillary uh spoke to that uh quite frequently uh during interviews for the book and and it's you know part of that's in there it you know everybody thinks that. Uh, the life of a professional triathlete is is glamorous, and that you're being thrown uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars by equipment sponsors, and, and it's just not happening. Um, some people think that, oh well, look at the amount of money that's being offered for first place at these uh, at some of these races. These guys are are making bang. Well, when you look around at each individual athlete, um, very few of them are are winning. Uh, even one race in a year, and you know, after first place, those that that prize money drops off pretty uh, pretty quickly.
2: Do you think so? Do you, do you think they should be making a lot of money? I mean, more than they see, because I've had this conversation with a bunch of the pros. I, uh, Terenzo Bazone for one. I spoke to him at great length about this. I talked to uh, uh, Chris McCormick about this, and these are guys that have made money. But I mean, at the end of the day, they're not really making the kind of money that. You know, I drew the parallel uh, of golfing. I mean, there's guys that are, you know, getting up in the morning, you know, maybe, and, you know, going out there with a cigar in face and maybe a little scotch. And, and, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying they all do that. But I'm just saying that, relatively speaking, the the physical uh, stress associated with trying to, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, someone might refute all of this. But uh, to, to me, comparatively speaking, it's a whole lot easier to golf than it is to, you know for example uh uh
1: participate in uh, an ultra triathlon well i, I it's it, for me there there are different perspectives on it and the first thing is that i don't think a lot of modern professional triathletes understand that when valerie silk first offered um that prize purse in hawaii she did it not because uh of uh, Larry King, or because of the folks at, at Y World of Sports, or anybody else pushed her into it. She consulted with friends running the other races. She thought about what she wanted to do for the athletes, and she decided that they were putting in so much to the race that she did want to offer them something. It, it's not an entirely inaccurate way to say this, She didn't do that as a business decision. That was an act of charity. She did that out of the goodness of her heart. So the first time pros started making money in Ironman, let's let's not confuse ourselves. No one forced her to do that. Um, Now, as for the the modern day um, problem, uh, I think it's sort of um, when the NBA players... Uh, went through strikes and negotiations with the league a while back and people got upset with some comments Patrick Ewing made um because he was a little ineloquent but when leagues sp- or when player spokesman later came back they said look we're not we know we're making a lot of money here we know we're getting paid in terms of millions and it's it seems like we're greedy and we're being petty about this um, and and making I mean really honestly how much is a basketball player worth but they said what you don't understand is just how much money is in the entire league, is in the entire bucket. And percentage wise, we are making a pittance compared to what is going through the program. So in this case I think the Ironman athletes have the same argument that they are I mean, there's a lot of money there just for for swim biking and running around a track. Um, that 's you know and i I hate to sound harsh that way um but let 's face it you 're not putting out a fire or going to Afghanistan with the army or um facing meth heads tonight on on the streets of of new york city right um and, you know and those guys are are you know might be making more or less than some pro athlete, uh pro athletes um, but in the grand scheme of things yeah iron man 's making. A lot of money. There's a lot of money churning through that machine, and they refuse to, uh, to pay the athletes out. And then I guess the final perspective I'd offer is if you really want to make it about a business decision now, because obviously we're no longer in a, in a place where we can negotiate on, on terms of, of charity, um, I think the Ironman athletes do a very poor job of answering the question why do they earn the money? Um, because it has never had anything to do with how fast they get around that course. That has that has no value uh, to Ironman whatsoever. What has value is how much uh, notoriety um, and brand recognition and publicity uh, you bring to the race. I mean, that's why the sponsors pay the athletes. Sure, sponsors love it when athletes win races, but not because they're winning, but because winning brings attention to the product. And I think Ironman athletes, by and large, fail to understand that. And I don't think that they, um, they've actively engaged Ironman in that language and, and said, this is why I bring or how I bring value to you. And I think, quite honestly, that's why Ironman in the last few years has gone to uh, bring in celebrities um, um, I forget celebrity chefs guy now. I'm not a reality TV person, right? Um, but the these types that's of people. Pissed off. what's that?
0: The guy that's always pissed off. Gordon <laughs> yeah, Ram-
1: <laughs> uh, Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay and a couple of football players and 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 this. I mean, it's it's you know endurance racing with the stars. Um, right. I guess I watch enough of it to, to know that show. But um, why is Iron Man going to Gordon Ramsay? Well, because he brings in more views and, and more attention than than Craig Alexander. So then the next question you ask is, hey, how come how come Craig Alexander or Miranda Carfrey aren't going out there and, and bringing more attention in? And is there something they could be doing? Um, and if they are, now you've got uh, something to, to negotiate with.
2: Well, to be honest with you, and, and all my triathlon friends out there, you're going to have to forgive me but i really think that watching ironman on television is like watching grass grow and, and I, I have you know i have a love for the sport and i have a love for the performances but it is just really hard to watch somebody ride a bike for 5 hours uh, and you know and then follow it up with a, i don't like to watch a marathon i i it's like by the way uh, basketball I, I don't love watching basketball either but i sure like to watch the last few minutes you know to see what's going to happen, and so I like I like uh, I like to get snippets of what's happening. So it's a difficult thing to cover, and uh, you know not to go off in another rant because I've only got a little bit more time here. But I'm involved with the Spartan racing people right now, and this is a very exciting sport because they're bringing up a whole new slew of athletes that are challenging all kinds of variety of 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 uh, capacities. You know. Can the little guy beat the big guy, and can the big guy make it through the long stuff and just a lot of different questions and because they can do it in an arena it 's got value you can watch it and, and it 's and people jumping through you know barbed wire and fire and things like this, so it 's got spectator value, so there 's going to be a lot of money made in that sport, and you know already there's athletes out there that are already starting to challenge the values of Earnings that are triathletes. So, uh, for whatever it's worth, you know, from from a business perspective, I I see where all that went. But you know, we got about five minutes here. Give me the, give me the. uh, At the end of the day, and I almost feel what you're trying to tell me. But what would you like people to do um, when they think about what the uh, ultra? Uh, ultra marathon, or, or I keep trying to say ultra marathon, ultra triathlon community is is all about. What what what, we should, what what do we do to preserve it, and what is it that we're trying to preserve?
1: I'll let Christian tell you what we're trying to preserve, and I'll I'll try and go after how do we do it.
0: Well, I think I think I think when you're talking about, I think we're I think we're confusing commodity um, with character. Uh I, I think I think the Ultraman community, specifically Ultraman, will preserve itself because it has guys like Jim and Steve King and Jane. Um I think the the bottom line is it invests more in people than it does pursuing profit. Um and uh it doesn't take a genius to see um, a woman waiting at the end of an Ultraman marathon to give each competitor a hug to figure out it's a lot more um, about getting to the bottom of somebody's heart than the bottom line. Um, and that's one of the things that I think I grew to appreciate more about this sport as I became more involved in it is, you know, had it not been for the sport, I wouldn't have made uh, Jim. I wouldn't have met Jim. He wouldn't have become a friend, not specifically because I'm in his book or because we geek out about stuff related to Ultraman but when you see people like um Hillary and Miro and um and specifically you know one of my heroes Steve King and Jane and um I I just can't argue with that type of truthfulness um and I I for one um know that Ultraman is pretty safe in the hands of people that care enough about it to make sure, um, that they don't drown themselves out with the, uh, the bottom line. Um, I have a passion for racing and sport and I have a passion to compete and to hurt, um, and to get new shoes and a new bike. And, um, but it goes much farther and deeper than that. And, uh, I, I I know a lot of pro athletes. Um, my coach was a pro, um, and my coach is a pro, um, and I think that that's one of the big things um, that uh, sometimes lacks with other events that I've been involved with and that even some of the other people that say that they've been involved with is that training is so personal um, because the sacrifices involved with the family, um, if the racing isn't personal, then what are you doing it for?
2: Okay, we got about four minutes, guys. If you want to preserve that...
1: Um, the you have to have, um, you have to have a, a a group that puts that preservation foremost, uh, and you you need a business model to keep the race going. Um, but you it has to be balanced um, with understanding of what the race was about to begin with. I think um, certainly Valerie's story shows just how quickly and unexpectedly uh, Iron Man began to ran, r- run away with her. Um, after Julie Moss uh, crosses or crawls across that finish line, it just became a huge thing, and Valerie was dealing um, again with, with you know. Budweiser uh, uh, sponsorships and, and race expansion, all these things. And I think you can. It's easy to get immersed in the day-to-day management of the beast, and just holding on to it, and forgetting that sometimes you need to, you know, stick your head up and, and understand where it's going. Um, I think a lot of the turmoil that's happened in Ultraman uh, in the last couple of years has occurred as a result of lacking a really articulate view of of what it's all about and where it needs to go. Um Jane and crew understand what it's all about and that it needs to stay this way. Um but how does it progress forward through time I think is something they uh they will continue to to have to work on. Um but they're in a in a good place now. And so it just takes a a it's a constant labor of love. Yeah. to make things Work on a day-to-day basis, but understanding also that you do have to have a, a long-term plan. Um, but it's a lot like uh, you know the, the analogy I keep coming to over and over again is Field of Dreams. Um, you know they kept calling Kevin Costner nuts throughout that entire movie, and and there were times where he just wanted to throw in the towel and and tear the whole thing down because he didn't know if he was going to make it. Um, but when he got to the end. I mean, it really is true, it, you know, and, and Ultraman proves that. If you build it, they will come, and that, that race continues to fill, fill up. It's becoming more and more popular around the world. Um, people are becoming less afraid of the distance and more hungry, I think, um, for what it offers you know, to the athlete's soul. And so it's been a long haul uh, for Ultraman, but, but they've built it, and now the people are coming. Um, and so the, the test now for them is, I think, to to just keep that baseball field in, in the middle of the corn running. Yeah. Um, well,
2: um, I hope you're right, for whatever it's worth. I mean, I, I, I think that the whole concept of trying to keep it real is a good one. Uh, I just know that it's, it's difficult. And having said all that, um, I think it's time we shut this down. So, gentlemen, it was a pleasure. And Same. And uh, I'm sure we'll have more conversations about this uh, in, in months and years to come. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.